Did you know that Bill Gates, one of Microsoft's co-founders, was appointed as an honorary knight of the British Empire? What's up everybody, GenX Dividend Investor here. Today in my 24th stock reveal video, I'll be doing a deep analysis of Microsoft Corporation, my second largest dividend stock by portfolio value of the 25 I own. That means that after this, I only have one stock to go. And if you are somebody who likes this video or Microsoft, then blow up that thumbs up button like Master Chief blowing up the covenant. Also, thank you for subscribing, liking, commenting on, and sharing my videos. I really appreciate it. A bunch of you have been guessing what my number one stock would be, and many of you guessed Microsoft, including Investing Education, Citizen of the Year, Travis Williams, Malone Money Mindset, Dividends with Alisher, Luis Garcia, and Jeannie Ray Flores. That is a great guess. And like the J&J guessers, you would have been accurate at one point in time. But as the market fluctuates, I've had different positions take the top spots in my portfolio. So nice job regardless. As I mentioned in my J&J video, I'm not going to be adding any more people to my tracking spreadsheet for what my largest stock by portfolio value is since the challenge of picking number one is way easier now than it was 20 plus videos ago. I'd like to invite you to join the Dividend Discord chat server that I've recently started. You get direct access to me as well as to over 650 other dividend investors, and our numbers are growing all the time. Discord is a free chat service over the internet. You can access it either with your browser or with a smartphone app, or you can download a thick client for your computer from www.discord.com. It's easiest to just click on the link in the description of this video, or download the smartphone app and type in lowercase k, k, capital S, lowercase r, 5, capital F, capital Y into the invite field. We have all kinds of experienced investors in this new chat server, including multiple people who became millionaires through investing, and we have people who have never invested and are just interested to learn. We have all ages represented, from teenagers to people in their 70s. They come from around the world, including Cyprus, Kuwait, Romania, Finland, Bulgaria, Germany, Canada, Belgium, Singapore, England, Australia, and a bunch of others. We have a main chat area that is basically for just normal BSing, and we have specific chat channels for dividend investments as well as non-dividend investments, such as if you want to talk about Tesla or Bitcoin or real estate or whatever. That way we keep the investing rooms focused on investing and the other rooms for other topics, such as movies and TV, politics, general news, sports, health and fitness, and others. Of course, none of the information should be taken as financial advice that you act on without doing your own research. Also included in the description below is a link to the latest version of my portfolio represented in M1 for those of you that have asked for that. And of course, don't just copy what's in my portfolio. I've been using M1 with a growth portfolio and I've enjoyed their UI. If you'd like to sign up to M1 for a new brokerage account so you can start dividend investing using it, then please consider using my M1 referral link that I'll also include in the description below. M1 seems to run promotions that give you free stuff when you open a new non-retirement brokerage account using someone's referral link and you transfer some money into your new account. Like when I signed up, I got a free $20. I don't know what promotion, if any, they're running when you click on the link, but I'm guessing it's something. Okay, now let's review my portfolio and then I'll do a deep analysis of Microsoft. Okay, here we are in a copy of my portfolio with only one stock remaining to go after this. So here we have the new information technology sector with Microsoft at 8.4%. And then here's healthcare with Johnson & Johnson, AbbVie, and Pfizer at 12.1%. Then we have consumer staples food beverages with Pepsi and Coke at 13% of this portfolio so far. And then we have utilities with Duke and Southern at 11.5%. And then we have real estate with O at 6.4%. 
This one right here is Consumer Staples Household Goods with Procter Gamble, Kimberly Clark, and Colgate Palmolive at 14.4%. Communication Services AT&T at 5.9%. This is Industrials with 3M, Leg, and Cat at 10.6%. Consumer Discretionary, which is McDonald's, Starbucks, Home Depot, and Disney at 9.8%. This one right here is Energy with Chevron and ExxonMobil at 4.8%. And then finally we have Financials with Goldman Sachs and Travelers at 3.1%. And then if we... Here we see Microsoft. I have 781 shares of it. Currently it's the time of filming this. It is up today, $3.24. It has gone up in the last 365 days, which is why this is green. Current PE about 31.2. I added an average weighted PE just for fun. So you can see that the portfolio's average weighted PE is 28.38. Forward PE for Microsoft is 30. And we see that the portfolio's average weighted PE is 19.79. IT sector, it's currently at about 8.4% of the portfolio. Is an annual dividend of $2.04. And then they tend to raise their dividend around September and would be a December then payout. The next payout is going to be in March 12th. Low dividend at 1.23%. Great three year dividend. CAGR at 9%. The five year dividend is at 10.9%. And the 10 year dividend CAGR is at 14.9%. I manually calculated the five-year dividend CAGR at 10.44%. So the portfolio's average weighted five-year dividend CAGR is at 7.32%, and the portfolio's starting yield, or the average weighted dividend yield, is at 3.09%. I have $129,000 of Microsoft, dripping about $1,593 a year. So that brings the portfolio total to $1.535 million and it's stripping $47,429. Good payout ratio at 38% and 16 years of consecutively increasing the dividend. We see that the portfolio's average weighted years of increasing dividends is at 37.59 years. Um, 1.22 beta, so the portfolio's average weighted beta is 0.64. And we see that they have a huge market cap at 1.2 trillion. And so the portfolio's average weighted market cap is $262.24 million. So now it's time for another deep analysis. Microsoft Corporation, ticker MSFT, is a $1.26 trillion market cap, $126 billion revenue, 144,000 employee, American multinational technology company, that develops, manufactures, licenses, supports, and sells computer software, consumer electronics, personal computers, and related services. It's best known for its Windows operating system, its Microsoft Office suite of programs, Internet Explorer and Edge web browsers, and its Xbox video gaming consoles, along with its Surface touchscreen computers. Microsoft is a very strong company. I found this chart showing that as of November 2019, Microsoft had the most cash on hand of any company in the world at around $137 billion in cash. That is insane. After Microsoft is Berkshire Hathaway at $128 billion, 
then Alphabet Google at 121 billion, and then Apple at 100 billion. Those were the elite $100 billion cash companies I found. Now to understand my love for Microsoft, we have to rewind back in time to when I was a kid. I was fascinated with computers and video games. One of my favorite games was Pac-Man at the arcade, and I figured out my own pattern to get to the final key level. For you old school gamers, the bonus objects in the original Pac-Man arcade were, in order, cherry, strawberry, orange, apple, melon, Galaxian Starship, Bell, and finally Key. I was so addicted to that game that I once stole a quarter from my mom's purse to play Pac-Man, but then guilt got the better of me and I told my parents what I had done later that night. When I was a kid, my two best friend's dads worked for different computer companies. One dad worked for Hewlett Packard, and that friend had a Commodore 64. His dad once let us play Commodore 64 games at the HP headquarters in one of their large conference rooms on a massive projector screen. And then another best friend's dad worked for IBM, and he had a PC and had two games on it, which really blew my mind. Microsoft Decathlon and Microsoft Flight Simulator. So Microsoft holds a special part in my heart from my childhood days. I've loved Microsoft and its products for literally decades. To this day, I still prefer the Windows operating system over any others, and my primary desktop at home runs Windows. I've spent literally tens of thousands of hours on Windows computers over the decades. My first Windows machine was a laptop I had when I went to college. I also love my Xbox, maybe more than my son does. We also have a PlayStation and a Wii, but my Xbox is the gaming console I like the most. I'm a big fan of Microsoft Word and Excel, and if I ever have to do a presentation, I still prefer PowerPoint over anything else. I've always liked the Microsoft Exchange Outlook email client, and I really like Teams and Skype for collaboration. I also love the simplicity of SharePoint. The first email address I got from my wife was on Hotmail, which is now called Outlook, and while I won't tell you what her email address is, I will tell you that it's just her first name at Hotmail.com or at Outlook.com, and she has a common first name, so that shows you I signed up on day one. I remember when I asked her if she wanted an email address in the 90s and she responded, what's an email? My first job out of college I was programming on MS-DOS and on Windows. As I mentioned in my Get to Know Me and Shoutout video, I had a coworker at my first job who suggested I get into the company's 401k. And then when I went to lunch with a bunch of other programmers, they often talked about investing in single stocks, so I got into that as well. One of the very first stocks I bought was Microsoft in the 90s. They've since gone through many stock splits. So let's understand Microsoft a bit. Microsoft operates in three business segments. Number one is productivity and business processes which consists of products and services in their portfolio of productivity, communication, and information services, spanning a variety of devices and platforms. This includes their office suite of programs, SharePoint, Teams, Exchange, Skype, LinkedIn, and their ERP solution Dynamics. Number two is Intelligent Cloud. This segment consists of their public, private, and hybrid server products and cloud services that can power modern businesses. So this segment primarily includes their cloud service they called Azure, including SQL Server, Windows Server, Visual Studio, System Center, and GitHub. This also includes their consulting services arm. And number three is more personal computing. This segment consists of products and services geared towards harmonizing the interests of end users, developers, and IT professionals across all devices. So this is the Windows operating system, Windows Internet of Things, MSN advertising, various hardware devices like the service tablet, gaming such as Xbox and its associated products and services, and Search, aka Bing. Microsoft is an incredible company, and they are AAA rated from Standard & Poor's. And other than Johnson & Johnson, they are the only other US-based, non-financial company that has a credit rating that high. Let's see where Microsoft is from a sector and industries perspective. We see that they are in the information technology sector and are in a variety of industries including software, technology hardware, and IT services industries. Let's check out who the largest institutional holders of Microsoft are. 
we see that Vanguard is number one with about 618 million shares worth about $86 billion, which is about 8.1% of outstanding shares. Speaking of Vanguard, let's see what their top five holdings are. We see that Microsoft is their number one holding in terms of portfolio value at $86 billion, followed by Apple at $74 billion, and then Amazon at $55 billion, Facebook at $32 billion, and Berkshire Hathaway at $30 billion. The largest single shareholder of Microsoft that I could find with 330 million shares is founder Bill Gates. That means he could drip over $670 million a year. Let me restate that. His shares drip over a half billion dollars every year just by holding them. And what is really amazing is that he has given away so much of Microsoft over the years. In fact, he and Warren Buffett both signed the Giving Pledge. The Giving Pledge is an effort to help address society's most pressing problems where the wealthiest individuals and families commit more than half of their wealth to philanthropy or charitable causes either during their lifetime or in their will. You will recognize various people who have taken this pledge, including Mark Benioff of Salesforce, Sir Richard Branson, Ray Dalio, Carl Icahn, Seth Klarman, Elon Musk, David Rockefeller, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, and the late Paul Allen, the other co-founder of Microsoft, amongst others. Bill's plan is to leave each of his kids with only $10 million per child. That might sound like a lot, but it isn't when you consider his net worth is around $110 billion. Okay, let's look at some of Microsoft's big competitors. The tech giants that often get called out as competitors to Microsoft include IBM at $123 billion market cap and 20 consecutive years of increasing their dividend, Oracle at $169 billion in 8 years, Google at $987 billion with no dividend, Apple at $1.35 trillion in 7 years, and Amazon at $906 billion with no dividend. Microsoft competes with each of these companies with different product lines. For example, if we look at cloud, which is a big driver of revenue growth for Microsoft, we see that they offer a service called Azure. Here they compete primarily against IBM's smart cloud offering, Amazon's web services, Google's cloud platform, Oracle Cloud, and Alibaba's AliCloud. Apple doesn't really compete with a cloud offering that has parity of features here. Speaking of cloud, here's a view of players by Gartner, a well-known research company. Gartner calls this view their magic quadrant, which provides a graphical competitive positioning of four types of technology providers, which are leaders, challengers, niche players, and visionaries. The more up and to the right you are, the better. As you can see, Amazon Web Services, aka AWS, and Microsoft are the best of the best, with no one else even close. And then behind them quite a ways is Google, and then clustered far behind are Oracle, IBM, and Alibaba. My personal background is in software. And this is exactly the graph I would have made had I never seen the Gartner diagram. Now there are nuances in terms of which companies excel in various aspects of cloud, but as a whole this is a pretty good summary. In their 2019 10K, Microsoft said that their commercial cloud business is the largest in the world, surpassing $38 billion in revenue in 2019, with gross margin expanding to 63%. They also said that 95% of the Fortune 500 trust Azure for their mission-critical workloads. Another product area Microsoft competes in is their database offering called Azure SQL Database, which competes with Oracle's database cloud service as well as IBM's DB2 smart cloud offering. Another area Microsoft competes in is in the productivity software such as Office and the like. Here Google is the primary competitor with Drive and Docs and such. Search is another competitive area where Microsoft has Bing to compete with Google. Apple is a competitor to Microsoft, but in a more narrow scope. For example, they both compete in operating systems as well as consumer hardware. That all being said, let's see who Microsoft themselves calls out as their main competitor. A 
company called Quartz analyzed the competitor section in Microsoft's 10K going back multiple decades and found that Microsoft called out IBM more than any other competitor. They called out IBM over 270 times in the past 30 years. IBM and Microsoft have both been competitors and partners over the years. The reason why Microsoft flourished in their early years was because they delivered the MS-DOS operating system which they sold to computer makers like IBM. So, given Microsoft has called out IBM more than anyone else, and since IBM has more consecutive years of increasing their dividend than the other big tech players, and because IBM is frequently in the portfolios of many dividend growth investors, I decided I'd use them in this deep analysis. International Business Machines, ticker IBM, is a $123 billion market cap, $80 billion revenue, 350,000 employee, American multinational technology company that produces and sells computer hardware, middleware, and software, and provides hosting and consulting services in areas ranging from mainframe computers to nanotechnology. IBM began in 1911, founded as the Computing Tabulating Recording Company, and was renamed to IBM in 1924. IBM is also a major research organization and holds the most U.S. patents generated by business for almost three decades. IBM has invented the floppy disk, the ATM, the hard drive, the magnetic stripe on credit cards, relational databases, the SQL programming language, the UPC barcode, and dynamic random access memory, to name just a few. Their mainframe line was the dominant computing platform in the 1960s and 70s. IBM employees have won five Nobel Prizes, 10 National Medals of Technology, six Turing Awards, and five National Medals of Science. So they have some smart cookies, to put it mildly. Speaking of IBM, Warren Buffett bought about a $10 billion stake in IBM starting in 2011. But in 2017, Buffett said he felt more certain about Apple's future than IBM's. Then later that year, he said he lost confidence in IBM after years of declining revenues. And then he sold out of IBM and went into Apple. Let's see how Microsoft and IBM are ranked in terms of most effectively managed companies in America per the Drucker Institute rankings. Here we see that Microsoft is more effectively managed than IBM per their findings. The top eight in the world are Amazon, then Microsoft, then Apple, then Google aka Alphabet, and then Cisco. Tied at number six are Facebook and IBM, and they are both incredibly well-managed companies. And then finally we come to Johnson & Johnson. Please watch my Procter & Gamble video if you'd like to learn a bit more about the Drucker rankings. Let's check out how Microsoft and IBM compare on fortunes lists. Microsoft is ranked at 26 and IBM is at 38 on the Fortune 500, so they are relatively close in terms of revenue. Microsoft is below Bank of America but above Home Depot. IBM is below Johnson & Johnson but above Target, so both are massive US companies. Let's see how they rank compared to all companies in the world. Here we see that both Microsoft and IBM make the list of the 500 largest revenue companies in the world. Microsoft is at number 60 on the list, below China Railway Construction but above Huawei Investment and Holding. IBM is at 114 and is below Equinor but above BASF. Please watch my Leggett and Platt video if you want to hear some fascinating facts about the top 10 companies in the world. Let's see how they rank on Fortune's Most Valuable Brands list. We find that Microsoft is one of the most valuable brands in the world, ranked at number 3 below Google and above Amazon. Incredible. We see that IBM is doing great at the 20th most valuable brand in the world, underneath Verizon at 19, but above BMW at 21. Let's see if either made it into the top 100 of Fortune's World's Most Admired Companies list. We find that Microsoft is ranked at an incredible number six in the world, underneath Starbucks at five, and above Alphabet aka Google at seven. We see that IBM is ranked at 40 in the world, underneath Unilever at 39 and Pepsi at 41. 
Okay, let's jump into a history of Microsoft. When most people think of Microsoft, they also often think of their billionaire co-founder, Bill Gates. Born in 1955, Gates grew up in Seattle and he attended public elementary school and the private Lakeside School. Gates was small for his age and was sometimes bullied as a child. But he discovered his passion for programming at age 13 along with his classmate and friend, Paul Allen. In 1972, at age 17, Gates formed a company with Paul Allen and another partner that they called Trafodata. Their objective was to read the raw data from roadway traffic counters and create reports for traffic engineers. Gates scored an almost perfect SAT score and entered Harvard in 1973, and living down the hall from him was Steve Ballmer, the man who he eventually trusted to become CEO of Microsoft. As a side note, I once saw Ballmer talk at a conference and what really stood out about him was his passion and drive. In 1974, Paul Allen, who is now a programmer at Honeywell, was walking through Harvard Square when he saw the cover of a magazine which talked about what some called the world's first microcomputer, the Altair 8800. However, it was lacking a programming language. Allen bought the magazine and rushed to show his friend Bill Gates. They saw potential to develop a simple programming language for the Altair before anyone else did. So Gates called up an Altair manufacturer and said they could demonstrate a working version of the programming language BASIC on an Altair. The manufacturer said he would be willing to watch their demo. So Gates and Allen started programming around the clock to build something they didn't have. What they built impressed the Altair manufacturer, and so Gates and Allen formed a company called Microsoft in 1975, which was a combination of microcomputer and software, to sell their newly built programming language. By the end of 1976, the company had made over $16,000, so Gates made the strategic decision to drop out of Harvard so he could focus on his newly formed Microsoft. Gates felt that computers were so compelling that they would eventually be on every desk in every home. In 1980, Microsoft was approached by IBM to provide an operating system to their personal computers, which they did, and it was called MS-DOS. In 1991, Bill met Warren Buffett in Seattle. Gates told Buffett that he needed to have a computer. Why, Buffett responded. Because you can do your income tax on it, Gates said. But I don't have any income. Berkshire doesn't pay a dividend, Buffett responded. Well, you can keep track of your portfolio, Gates said. I only have one stock, responded Buffett. It's going to change everything, Gates retorted. Buffett apparently sat there for a moment before responding, Well, will it change whether people chew gum? Probably not, said Bill. Will it change the kind of gum they chew? asked Buffett. Bill said, I don't know. Probably frustrated at the discussion. So Buffett said, Well, I'll stick to chewing gum and you stick to computers. The lesson here is that Buffett strongly believes in investing in your circle of competence. You don't have to understand all businesses. You just need to understand the ones you invest in. So did Buffett make a mistake? Well, looking back, it seems like he did since he missed out on some massive profits. But he still became crazily successful following his guidelines. Something to think about. In 1985, Microsoft released Microsoft Windows 1.0, a graphical extension of MS-DOS. In 89, Microsoft introduced Microsoft Office, which included Microsoft Word, Excel, and so forth. It was extremely successful with both businesses and individuals. By 93, Windows had become the most widely used GUI operating system in the world. In 1995, Microsoft released Windows 95, a powerful upgrade to the Windows operating system, which was the same year that Bill shifted focus to the internet for Microsoft. In 2000, Steve Ballmer became CEO and Gates and his wife started the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to help lift people around the world out of hunger and poverty. In 2001, Microsoft launched their popular gaming console, Xbox. In 2004, Microsoft started paying dividends. In 2005, Gates received an honorary knighthood for his charitable work and his achievement in creating one of the world's most successful software companies. Honorary knighthoods are awarded by the Queen of England, 
on the advice of the Foreign Office, to those who have made an important contribution to British interests. Microsoft directly employs almost 2,000 people in the UK. So as a Knight Commander of the Order of the British Empire, he will not be known as Sir because that title is reserved for British citizens. In 2006, Microsoft passed on the opportunity to acquire YouTube for $500 million. Six months later, Google paid $1.6 billion for the site that is now the most popular video destination on the web. In 2009, Microsoft launched Bing, their version of Google for searching. In 2010, Microsoft launched their Windows Phone, which ultimately failed to become a market leader, and mobile became the area which Gates proclaimed was his biggest mistake of his life. Specifically, he said, in the software world, particularly for platforms, these are winner-take-all markets. So the greatest mistake ever is whatever mismanagement I engage in that caused Microsoft not to be what Android is. That is, Android is the standard non-Apple phone platform. That was a natural thing for Microsoft to win. It was Google who acquired Android for just $50 million in 2005, and then the original iPhone came out in 2007, and the first Android device came out in 2008. Now Android has 85% of the smartphone OS market, and Windows mobile phones are almost extinct. In 2011, Microsoft released their online version of their Office apps, called Office 365. In 2016, they acquired LinkedIn. And in 2018, they acquired GitHub, a popular source for version controlling software. In 2019, they released HoloLens, which is a device you wear on your head over your eyes, which renders 3D images in front of you. So it's an amazing history of successes and failures, and another example of how hard you need to work, manage your risks, and persevere if you want to make it. Okay, let's look at some of their current business strategies. Microsoft has three core strategies I found. Number one is reinvent productivity and business processes, and this is about delivering continuous innovation and advancing their leading productivity and collaboration tools and services, including Office, Microsoft Dynamics, and LinkedIn. Number two is build the intelligent cloud and intelligent edge platform. Their strategy requires continued investment in data centers and other hybrid and edge infrastructure to support their services. They need Microsoft Azure to remain a trusted cloud with comprehensive compliance coverage and AI-based security built in that offers many services that allows businesses to grow better, faster, and cheaper. Number three is create more personal computing. Here, Microsoft is striving to make computing more personal by putting users at the core of the experience, enabling them to interact with technology in more intuitive, engaging, and dynamic ways. In support of this, they are bringing Office, Windows, and devices together for an enhanced and more cohesive customer experience. Okay, let's jump into their financials. There are four key financial areas I like to understand when I'm analyzing a business, and they are number one, is the company growing? Number two, can the company cover what it owes in the next year? Number three, do they have too much debt? And number four, how's their profitability? Let's start with number one. There are six main things I like to review when answering a question, is a company growing? And they are number one, is revenue growing? Number two, are earnings growing? Number three, is equity growing? Number four, is cash flow growing? Number five is the dividend growing, and number six is the stock price growing. I also like to review how shares outstanding are trending. So let's start with number one of six. Let's look at the revenue growth history for both Microsoft and IBM on Macrotrends.net, Guru Focus, Yahoo Finance, and Zaxx. Microsoft's revenue for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $129.8 billion, a 12.97% increase year over year. Their 2021 estimate is for $155 billion. IBM's revenue for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $77.1 billion, a 4% decline year-over-year. Their 2021 estimate is for $79.9 billion. So Microsoft's trend looks awesome here, and IBM's does not look good. 
Let's dig into Microsoft's revenue trends by segment to see what we can learn. We see a fairly even breakdown in revenue between their three main business segments. Azure Intelligent Cloud segment has been growing the fastest at around 20% a year. And then the other two lines are growing around 15% per year for an overall excellent growth trend for such a massive company. Okay, let's look at Microsoft's net income trending over time and compare that to IBM's. Microsoft's net income for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was 41.1 billion, a 118% increase year over year. IBM's net income for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was 7.7 billion, a 35% increase year over year. In 2018, they took an almost $14 billion charge related to the tax act. In 2019, they received a multi-billion dollar net income tax benefit related to intangible property transfers. Let's dig into Microsoft's profits by segment. We see that there's a fairly even distribution of profits between those three segments, with great growth coming in all areas. Okay, onto number three of six, is equity growing? Microsoft's shareholder equity for the quarter ending September 30th, 2019 was 106 billion, a 23.4% increase year over year. IBM's shareholder equity for the quarter ending September 30th, 2019 was $18.1 billion, a 9.2% decline year-over-year. So Microsoft's trends have been awesome, and IBM's not so much. Okay, let's move on to number four of six, is cash flow growing? To answer the question, is a company growing? Please watch my Southern Company video if you want to learn more about cash flow nuances. We see that Microsoft's free cash flow trends are incredible. 31.4 billion in 2017, 32 billion in 2018, 38 billion in 2019. IBM doesn't have the growth that Microsoft has, but it's still showing over 10 billion in free cash flow. Okay, let's move on to number five of six, is the dividend growing? So we see Microsoft in the upper left and IBM in the upper right. On this chart, we see that Microsoft has a nice uninterrupted dividend growth trend line over 16 years, which is great for a high-tech company. IBM has paid consecutive quarterly dividends without interruption since 1916. A total of 418 quarterly dividends have been paid to shareholders. IBM's dividend has been growing steadily for around 20 years, although this growth followed a difficult period for the company. IBM nearly imploded in the 1990s as the personal computer and the client-server model damaged its business model. The dividend was actually cut in 1993 and then fell further as IBM's bottom line went into the red. We see that both of their share prices have increased in the last 365 days as denoted by their green spark lines. We see that Microsoft's PE is an expensive 31 compared to IBM's at a nice 13. Microsoft's forward PE is a high 30 compared to IBM's which is much nicer at 10.5. Microsoft's dividend in Q1 of 2019 was $1.84 per share compared to IBM's at a large $6.26 per share. Microsoft is at $2.04 as of today, and IBM is at $6.48. I pulled the CAGR from Guru Focus, other than the ones I manually calculated. Microsoft's three-year dividend CAGR is a great 9% compared to IBM's decent 5.3%. Microsoft's five-year dividend CAGR is a great 10.9% compared to IBM's good 8.3%. Microsoft's 10-year dividend CAGR is an awesome 14.9% compared to an also great one for IBM at 12.1%. Overall, I'd like to see a 7% dividend CAGR or higher. One good check you can consider doing is to see what their dividend CAGR is, and then see if their net income is also increasing at that rate, so that their payout ratio goes at least sideways. I'll leave that to you. Microsoft's dividend yield right now is a super weak 1.84% as the time I did this, compared to IBM's, which is great at 4.47%. Microsoft's 10-year estimated yield on costs is a poor 3.01% as compared to IBM's great 12.2%. 
Microsoft's 30-year estimated yield on costs is a good 72% as compared to IBM's great 137%. We see that Microsoft has been consecutively increasing their dividend for 16 years. I'd rather see this for over 20 years to prove that they could not cut through two recessionary periods, but 16 is a great start. IBM is right at 20 years. And then in terms of payout ratio, we see that both are solid at under 50%, with Microsoft having a lot of room to grow comfortably. So I think Microsoft makes sense if you are creating a portfolio for generational wealth and you don't need to tap the dividend income in shorter timeframes. That being said, you could also tap it and have the option of selling shares if you needed as a way to mitigate the lower starting yield. Okay, let's look at what's going on with shares outstanding. Microsoft shares outstanding for the quarter ending September 30th, 2019, was $7.7 billion, a 0.72% decline year over year. IBM's shares outstanding for the quarter ending September 30th, 2019, was $0.89 billion, a 2.5% decline year over year. So these are trends I like, because less shares outstanding means my shares are becoming more valuable. Companies typically issue more shares when they need to raise capital through equity financing, or for reasons such as acquisitions and mergers, or internal reasons like exercising employee stock options and such. For reference, in 2016, Microsoft's board of directors approved a share repurchase program authorizing up to an additional $40 billion worth of share repurchases. This is a chart I pulled from the 2019 10K, which shows the buybacks that Microsoft has done. We can see the billions of shares they've been buying back year over year. Okay, finally, number six of six, is the stock price growing? To help us answer the question, is a company growing? Here's some data from Microsoft's 2019 10K, which shows how Microsoft has been outperforming both the S&P 500 and some peers over the last five years. Let's look at the total returns of Microsoft compared to IBM and the S&P 500 using Dividend Channel's Total Returns Drip Calculator. This models what would have happened if you invested 10K around 25 years ago. We see that your 10K would have turned into about 455K for Microsoft and then say a 4,457% return. Your 10K would have turned into a decent 79K for IBM, a 694% return. Your 10K in the S&P 500 would have turned into about 89K, a nice 790% return. So Microsoft takes this one. Okay, let's move on to number two. Can the company cover what it owes in the next year? which is asking if it can cover its short-term debt obligations. I like to use the current ratio to determine that. It is important to compare ratios in the same industry due to fluctuations in what is normal. A ratio higher than one indicates that a company will have a high chance of being able to pay off its shorter-term debt, whereas a ratio of less than one indicates that a company may not be able to pay off its shorter-term debt. So the higher the ratio, the more liquid the company is. I like to see ratios between 1.5 and 3. Microsoft's current ratio is 2.85, compared to the industry median 1.75, which ranks them higher than 72% of their industry. IBM's current ratio is 1.09, compared to the industry median 1.75, which ranks them lower than 75% of their industry. So Microsoft looks good here. The number three next main item I like to look at when analyzing a business is if it has taken on too much debt using the debt to equity ratio. Remember, debt to equity is total liabilities divided by total equity. If the ratio is greater than one, the majority of assets are financed through debt. If it's smaller than one, assets are primarily financed through equity. I like to see between one to 1.5. A high debt to equity ratio is often associated with high risk as it often means a business is pushing for fast growth with debt. The average debt to equity ratio among the S&P 500 companies is approximately 1.5. That being said, the appropriate debt to equity ratio varies depending on the industry because some industries use more debt financing than others capital-intensive industries, and businesses that have stable and recurring demand that remains relatively constant regardless of economic condition often have higher ratios. 
So companies with high ratios often include utilities, transports, energy, financials, telcos, and the like. Microsoft's debt to equity is 0.69 compared to the industry median 0.21, which ranks it lower than 77% of the industry. IBM's debt to equity is 3.4 compared to the industry median 0.21, which ranks it lower than 98% of the industry. IBM looks a bit unhealthy to me from a debt perspective. Okay, let's see if we think they can cover their interest payments. So let's see if EBIT is at a reasonable level. Microsoft's EBIT for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $45.7 billion, a 22.5% increase year over year. IBM's EBIT for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $10.5 billion, a 14.5% decline year over year. I normally like to see EBIT greater than or equal to three times net interest. Looking at their income statements, we see that both of them cover. Okay, let's look at return on equity or their earnings power. Normally, I expect to see 10% to 15% to cover their cost of capital and make money for shareholders, but the more the better. So ROE tells us how much profit a company makes for every dollar it has in shareholder equity. ROE is the income that is being generated as a percentage of shareholders' equity, also known as book value. A large amount of intangible assets can make a company have a negative book value. So companies with lots of patents, which are obviously valuable, can cause you to be misled by its negative book value. We see that Microsoft ROE is 41.6% compared to the industry median 5.36%, which ranks them higher than 95% of the industry. IBM's ROE is 44.4% compared to the industry median 5.36%, which ranks them higher than 96% of the industry. So both of them look excellent here. Please watch my AbbVie video if you want a more detailed explanation of ROE, which goes into some of its nuances. Okay, let's look at return on assets ROA as a measure of profitability. RA will tell us how efficiently a company is squeezing profit from their assets. Return on assets is a measure of how well a company takes all of the money it has and uses that to make more money. It's a metric which is used to calculate management's effectiveness to understand how much profit a company earns for every dollar of its assets. ROAs over 5% are generally what I look for. The higher the ROA, the higher the asset efficiency. Microsoft's ROA is 15.1% compared to the industry median of 2.03%, which ranks them higher than 91% of the industry. IBM's ROA is 5.5% compared to the industry median 2.03%, which ranks them higher than 66% of the industry. So Microsoft is killing it here, and IBM is better than most. Okay, let's look at return on invested capital trends, or ROIC. ROIC is a profitability ratio that looks to measure the percentage return that investors in a company are earning from their invested capital. So it's the residual value of assets minus liabilities. Thus, it is the amount of return a company makes above the average cost it pays for its debt and equity capital. Here we have IBM in blue, obviously, and Microsoft is in red. They both are generating good RIC. We see that their RICs are greater than their weighted average cost of capital, or WAC, which I pulled from Guru Focus. If ROIC is greater than WAC, then it generally means it's creating value. If it's less than WAC, then it generally means it's destroying value. That being said, I generally like to see RICs over 2%, which means that the company is generating value for investors. So less than 2% means it's destroying value. Please watch my Pepsi video if you want to learn more about RICs, WAC, and their relationship. Okay, the next profitability metric we will look at is net margin. I like the net profit margin because it's a decent metric and just a single figure to gauge how effectively management is running the business. Net profit margins vary depending on the type of industry you're in. Watch my previous videos for more details. Solid net profit margins can mean a stronger company that is able to survive challenging economic times. Microsoft's net margin is 31.7% compared to the industry median 2.5%, which ranks them higher than 97% of the industry. 
IBM's net margin is 10% compared to the industry median of 2.5%, which ranks them higher than 77% of the industry. So Microsoft is amongst the best of the best and IBM is doing well. Okay, let's look at one final profitability measure, which is earnings per share or EPS. EPS is a company's profit divided by the number of common shares outstanding. EPS shows how much money a company makes for each of its shares of stock. A higher EPS often means that people will pay more for a company due to the higher profits. Sometimes people like to utilize diluted EPS rather than basic EPS in their analysis. So Microsoft's EPS for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $5.30, a 118% increase year over year. IBM's EPS for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was $8.62, a 38% increase year over year. So I like Microsoft's trends here and IBM's looks a little bit shaky. Okay, let's move from their financials to their community involvement, charitable giving, and to their environmental, social, and governance work. I wanted to introduce a new set of metrics for this section which I found helpful to know about and they are the Yahoo Finance Sustainability Scores. If you search for a stock on Yahoo, they have a sustainability tab and here is what they show for Microsoft in terms of sustainability risk ratings. Environmental risk score is what you would expect, how a company impacts the environment around them. Social risk score is about things like are there discrimination issues or do they fail to ensure labor policies or do they have safety violations or are there regulatory issues or concerns. Governance risk scores have to do with unusually high CEO pay without performance targets or issues with discretionary incentive pay or combined CEO chair role or issues with financial transactions or inadequate audit and compensation committees or issues or concerns about their board of directors and such. They combine these scores into a total ESG or environmental, social, and governance risk score and tell you what percentage that score puts you in relative to other companies they have assessed. They also have a controversy score, which is an attempt to measure how much controversy is with the company in the media. So I included Microsoft in the upper left, IBM in the upper right, and Chevron in the lower left to show a cross-section comparison. We see Microsoft's total environmental, social, and governance risk score is a good one at 15, because lower score means lower risk, which is better. So they're in the top 8th percentile of the risk, which is excellent. So you could say they're in the bottom 8th percentile of risk, which is excellent. Their environment risk score is 0.4, which is nice and low. Their social risk score is a 9.7, which is decently high. Their governance risk score is a 5.2. We see that IBM is in the ballpark of Microsoft. They have a slightly higher ESG risk score, but not materially so. Now when we look at Chevron, we see that their ESG risk score is a much higher 42 versus the 15, which puts them in the 85th percentile of companies per this rating, versus Microsoft, the low 15th percentile. We can see that Chevron's environment risk score is 20.2 versus Microsoft's, which is at 0.4. We also see that Chevron has a high controversy score at 4 versus Microsoft's lower 3 and IBM's even lower 2. Okay, so what is Microsoft doing that helps contribute to the lower scores? Microsoft has an awesome multifaceted approach to ESG, broken into three themes. Number one is trust and responsibility. Microsoft recognizes privacy as a fundamental human right, so they work to preserve their customers' ability to control their data make informed choices to protect their privacy, and support critical efforts to secure cyberspace against new and emerging threats. They build AI responsibly, taking a principal approach to guide the development and use of artificial intelligence with people at the center of everything they do. They work to ensure that their suppliers operate in a socially, environmentally, legally, and ethically responsible manner, and they treat the people who work for them fairly and with dignity. They analyze 6.5 trillion signals each day to help ensure security. 
They process 450 billion authentications and scan 400 billion emails for malware and phishing each month as they work to protect their customers. Number two is closing the opportunity gap. As a global technology company, Microsoft believes they have a responsibility and a great opportunity to help close the broadband gap that exists in the U.S. and across the globe. They are working to connect 40 million unserved and underserved people around the globe to have high-speed internet access by 2022 through their Airband initiative. They have given $500 million in loans and grants to accelerate the construction of more affordable housing in the Puget Sound region. They have donated and discounted software and services via their Microsoft Philanthropies organization to the tune of $1.5 billion. They have also given $170 million via their employee giving program and their company MASH to support nonprofits and communities around the world. Number three is protecting the planet. Microsoft is committed to leveraging technology to some of the world's most urgent environmental issues, focused on areas where they can have the greatest impact, including carbon, energy, water, and waste. They've operated carbon neutral since 2012 and continue to reduce their emissions. They are one of the largest purchasers of renewable energy in the United States. They utilize around 60% of renewable energy for powering their data centers with a 7% goal within the next four years. They use their campus as a living lab of innovation, always testing new ways to minimize their impact and maximize positive return for the planet. They design their devices from Surface to Xbox with emphasis on eco-friendly materials. Okay, let's move to their executive team. The average tenure of their senior leadership team is around 21 years, which is way above the norm. Let's look at their CEO. Satya Nadella has been the CEO of Microsoft since 2014 and an employee for 28 years. He has been leading various parts of Microsoft, including Microsoft Cloud, aka Azure, and their enterprise group, amongst others. In Microsoft, he is known as a leader who understands technology and how to transform business. Satya changed Microsoft's perspective on Linux and proclaimed that Microsoft loves Linux, which was a big change from Balmer's take on Linux. Microsoft has since joined the Linux Foundation as a Platinum member. Satya also changed Microsoft's mission statement from the one Bill Gates had, which was a PC on every desk and in every home running Microsoft software, to be empower every person in every organization on the planet to achieve more. Microsoft has made a bunch of large acquisitions under his leadership, including the Minecraft Enterprise, LinkedIn, and GitHub. He's on the board of directors for Starbucks, a company I'm also long in. One way we can assess a CEO is on how their stock has done since they've taken office. So here we see Microsoft in black, Spy in purple, and IBM in blue. We see that Microsoft has blown both the S&P 500 and IBM out of the water. IBM has underperformed relative to the S&P 500. Amazing job, Mr. Nadella. Amazing job. Okay, let's jump into concerns and risks. Now, there are a variety of risks you need to be aware of that can impact a company like Microsoft, and I'll cover some of them. Their success is highly dependent on their ability to attract and retain qualified employees, especially challenging in the ultra-competitive tech environment. Because a significant portion of their revenue and expenses are international, then changes in foreign exchange rates can significantly move things up or down. The technology landscape is evolving quickly, which is both a risk and an opportunity for Microsoft. As they mentioned in their 10K, each industry shift is an opportunity to conceive new products, new technologies, or new ideas that can transform the industry and or their business. Of course, if they don't evolve, then they get left in the dust. A risk is that they face extreme competition in all their segments from other companies trying to take market share. There is both risk and opportunity depending on which political party comes into power, and how far left or right that party drives things. There are a variety of patent infringement cases pending against Microsoft, none of which are currently deemed material in the analysis I read. Antitrust and unfair competition class action lawsuits have been and will probably continue to be a risk and issue they face. They also face product-related litigation, such as with their smartphones. 
If you are interested in litigation risks, I recommend you dive deeper. Cybersecurity issues can impact them or their customers, such as those on Azure, amongst others. Malware also can impact their products, which then can have cascading damage to customers in Microsoft. I was curious if a recession would be a material risk to Microsoft, so let's look at how they did during the dot-com crash and the 2008 banking crash. We see Microsoft in black, the S&P 500 in blue, and IBM in purple. So we can see that Microsoft was hit decently well and then trended sideways for many years until it started really pushing back up in 2015 and has since far outperformed the S&P 500 and IBM, which has underperformed both Microsoft and the S&P 500. Regulatory and tax changes could also impact them in a positive or negative way. Tariff changes, economic sanctions, wars, and large political changes could impact them. They also face product risks. For example, new free productivity tools could storm the marketplace. Or alternatives to LinkedIn or GitHub, or etc. can suddenly take the marketplace by storm, as technologies evolve faster and faster. They face the risk of losing more ground on some of their second place products. By that I mean their search product, their CRM product, etc. The Goliaths could drive them down. I encourage you to dig into the very specifics if you're thinking of investing so you're armed with all the data. And so those are some of the risks I thought of, but again, dive into their details if you are so inclined to be more thorough. So let's talk about what some of my thoughts are on price. Please watch my 3M video if you're interested in learning more about how you can value a business and more details about how you can use discounted cash flow to estimate how much the stock or business is worth paying for. I thought I'd do a quick DCF for Microsoft. Okay, so here we are in a DCF put together. So I pulled this whack from Guru Focus. We see that there's 7.7 billion shares outstanding and I required rate of return at 8%. This will be kind of individual to everybody, so you have to figure out what makes sense for you given your financial situation, your goals, and blah, blah, blah. So I pulled the free cash flow and put that in here. Basically everything in yellow is fields that I input in. And then what I did was I looked at basically the average increase in the free cash flow for these years and you know, when I looked at them, it came to about 8% a year. So then for the 2020 estimate in 2021 and 2022, first one you could actually pull from their projections, but I just decided to take this average 8% growth over this time frame, and then say they'd have 7% growth for 2020, 6% for 2021, 5% for 2022, 4%, and then three would be recurring. And so, that's how this kind of estimated free cash flow would grow. And then I have a terminal value, which takes this final year at 2024 and then multiplies it by basically this value right here. So 1.03% and then divides all that by this required rate of return minus this uh, final value here, this 3%. So that's how this information comes up. And then in order to get into present value, we have to discount it. And so to get this discount value, we take this one plus the weighted average cost of capital to the first power. And then at year two, it's the second power, year three, third, et cetera, et cetera. So the present value of this estimated free cash flow is going to be this amount divided by this discount value. So that's how we get all of these. And then 
we find out this is the current share price. The fair value then is going to be the sum of all of these free cash flows divided by the shares outstanding. And then we see that the margin of safety is just looking at the current share price relative to the fair value. Anyway, so doing this quick DCF, it comes out that the value is $115, which is basically saying that the shares are like 30% too pricey if I did my quick estimating correctly. Okay, now let's take a look at their PEs. Watch my previous videos to learn some nuance about PEs and what I expect to see in different industries. So Microsoft's PE ratio is 31.1 compared to the industry median 27 and a forward PE of 30.3, which ranks them lower than 58% of the industry. IBM's PE ratio is 13.3 compared to the industry median 27 and a forward PE of 10.52, which ranks them higher than 74% of the industry. So Microsoft is looking pricey here, and IBM looks like it's a decent price to value. Please watch my AbbVie video if you want to learn more about the S&P 500 PE ratios. Remember that the average PE across the S&P 500 is around 15 or 16 if you go back to the beginning of the markets. Okay, another final metric I like to look at is how their dividend yield has trended over time as an input into my buying decisions. So here are the last 10 years of dividend yield trends for Microsoft and IBM. Microsoft's current dividend yield at the time I did this is 1.18% versus an industry median 1.43%, which ranks them lower than 60% of the industry. IBM's dividend yield is 4.57% compared to the industry median 1.43%, which ranks them higher than 90% of the industry. So we see that IBM is rocking it here, but Microsoft falls short. I prefer to see a 3%, but beggars can't be choosers, my grandmother always used to tell me. Microsoft has been steadily getting pricier relative to its value for the last seven years or so. IBM is continually getting cheaper relative to its value over the last decade. Remember, yield is their annual dividend that they pay out divided by share price. So if this line is flat, then it's one indicator that its relative price to value has stayed flat when looking at this metric in isolation. If the line trends downhill, then it probably indicates that it's getting pricier, and if it trends up, then it indicates that it's potentially becoming more of a price worth considering. It will have a tendency to trend up if they increase their annual dividend payout, or if the share price goes down. It will trend down if the share price goes up relative to the dividend payout. So the ideal is to buy when the yield is high, and then see the line trend down because its share price is going up after you buy it. Of course, if the share price goes down, then your drip can buy more shares. Let's look at what analysts at MarketBeat said about IBM and Microsoft. So Microsoft has a consensus rating of buy now and a consensus rating six months ago of also buy. The share price today is $165.04 and the consensus price target today is $169.55, which is a 2.73% upside. The consensus price target six months ago was $151.19. IBM's consensus rating is a hold compared to the consensus rating six months ago of also a hold, a share price today of $140.56, and a consensus price target today of $154.86, which is a 10.17% upside. The consensus price target six months ago was $157. So here we see the professionals believe that there is a marginal upside for Microsoft and a stronger upside for IBM, though only Microsoft has a buy consensus rating. Now let's look at insider trading. We see a variety of transactions by their officers and directors. There's some decently sized transactions that might influence you. Please watch my Southern Company video if you want to learn more about how to read a Form 4 dealing with insider trading. Nothing jumps out as disconcerting to me, but I'm not looking over broad timeframes, which if you're concerned or interested in, you should do. So what about me? When did I buy Microsoft and what price would I want to see before I might be compelled to add more to my position? 
As always, don't take this as financial advice. So Microsoft was one of the first stocks I ever bought. Microsoft IPO'd in 1986 at $21, but since then it has split nine times over multiple decades, and one share purchased in 1986 would be 288 shares now. That being said, I got in at a ridiculously low price, but I also didn't invest that much. So my investment grew over time. Over the years, I've been trimming my Microsoft position into other positions. I unfortunately don't have any data on how many shares I bought and exactly at what prices, because all that information got lost. I used to track all of my stock info on a personal laptop, but I never made a backup of my data on that laptop, and in the early 2000s it died. But the company I took it to wanted $2,000 to just try to pull data off a dead hard drive. The cost was too steep, so I lost tons of information. And in those years, as I moved between brokerages, the information wasn't always properly moved, so my original buys and sells and such didn't get tracked correctly. At the time, I was pretty naive and didn't worry about it. Later, I learned that brokerages will purge your old information after a long period of time. At least some do. So when I did finally sell any shares, and I had to do my taxes, I always got hammered hard since I didn't have good documentation. So let's talk about what price I'd be more compelled to add to my position at. Today's price of over $160 is a bit high for my tastes. Ideally, I'd love to see a pullback to the DCF I calculated around $115, or at least below $130, which is another 10% premium for being such an amazing company. Will we see that? I don't know. What I do know is that Microsoft is one of those companies I plan to pass down to my kids. And probably 30 years from now, I'll look back at today's prices and wish I had funneled even more into it. But for now, I'm just letting my drift do its magic. So what do you think? Are you a bull or a bear on Microsoft? Are you going to buy, sell, hold, or keep looking? This just in, Kimberly-Clark raised its dividend by 3.9% to $1.07 per quarter per share. The dividend will be payable on April 2nd, 2020 to shareholders of record as of March 6, 2020. That raises my Kimberly-Clark annual passive income from $2,248 a year to $2,336 a year, which is an $88 per year increase. And Chevron also just announced that they increased their dividend by 8.4% to $1.29 a share per quarter. The dividend is payable March 10th to shareholders of record as of February 18th. So that raises my passive income from $841 a year to $912 a year for a $71 a year increase of my annual passive income. Finally, if you learned anything or enjoyed this video, then please don't forget to hit the thumbs up button and leave a comment, including your partner number is a simple way to thank me for making this free deep analysis video of Microsoft. Adding your partner number to your comment helps me to be able to do shoutouts and visual acknowledgements to my subscribers who watched and commented on most of my videos. With this Microsoft video, I'm hashtag partner31 because I've watched all my videos from start to end as well as left a comment. Thanks, stay awesome, I believe in you, and I'll see you in my next video. Remember, I'm not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I'm only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments. Don't use this information without double checking it and talking to someone a lot smarter than me after you completely understand it. So I'll see you in the next video and remember to stay positive, patient, play for the long term, keep investing in great companies, budget reasonably and win. I know you can do it. Just like I know you can hit the subscribe, like and bell icons, share this video with others and comment below.